And throughout the year, the goal is on the last Sunday of every month in the evening service, I'll be going through a text that describes God's purpose and his mission and his vision for what he wants the church to be and do. Now, there's a a lot of things we could unpack in all that. We could talk about God's design for the church, what a church is, and who we're to be. And I think we're quite familiar with that as a congregation. But another question we could ask is, where's the church going? And as anyone knows, an organization without a direction is at best ineffective and at worst on a path towards just being eliminated and disappearing and dwindling. And I trust that we do know God's direction for us, but I hope in putting this before us, it would clarify and sharpen for us in our minds, where are we going? Who are we to be? Or, or else, in, a, in another way to put it, why do we exist? How are we supposed to accomplish our purpose? And what does God want us to accomplish while we're here? What's our direction? Where are we going? And that's what I hope to unpack over these next 12 months in this series. And so in the evening service, we'll have a combination of a sermon, but also as pastor has done in the past, we'll also have an opportunity to discuss that with each other and have groups that split up as pastor's done in the past. And we'll just discuss the application and what does it look like for us to be this church that God wants for us. And as we unpack this, I I hope to see that that brings us together in a common purpose and why we exist as a church. And if we could summarize what, what God's word says about the church, if we could put it in one sentence and what God wants a church to be, it could be something like this. The church exists to glorify God by making disciples for advancing the gospel. Everything we do as a church exists for the very glory of God and who he is. Not a single bit of our purpose stems from who we are. It comes from the fact that God's created everything and that everything exists through him and that everything exists for him. He is the glorious God who's worthy of our praise. And so we glorify God in an essence of who we are as an organization As a living organism, as the church, the body of Christ, we exist for the glory of God. But the task that God has given us and clearly seen in our New Testament is that we must make disciples. The very last words that Jesus gave his apostles and by by implication to us, his church, is to go make disciples. As our very purpose as an institution, Jesus has left us clear direction. We're to make disciples. But the whole vision and goal of what God wants to accomplish is not just disciples who stay, but disciples who go and multiply and create and spread the gospel to our community and to communities around the world, even through people like the Mawindis who are out sharing Christ. We as a church don't exist for our own benefit and to bolster our seating capacity. Our church exists to go send people out and to make an impact for God in the world with his gospel as we help make disciples. And so we exist to glorify God by making disciples 
for the advancement of God's gospel in Altoona and around the world. And that's what I want to unpack as we go into this series. And we begin by just examining what does it mean to glorify God? The very foundation of who we are, we exist for God's glory. There are so many purposes that the church could have that focus on us and our needs. And God has created the church as a, as a fulfillment of human needs. We have a need for fellowship and belonging. We want to be a part of a people who love and care for us. We have a need to be instructed and taught in the word of God. We need that in our lives. There are many needs that the church can fulfill and that God has said are right and good. But we would fail as a church if we began to nasal gave, nasal gave, navel gaze, and we get focused on our needs instead of focusing on who God is. Because if we lose the vision of God and what he wants us to do, we will not endure. And our church will fade. But if we hold before us a vision of God's glory and who he is, we will be moved to endure and to fulfill what God has called us to do. And so I want to begin by just stopping and looking at the glory of God the Father, seeing who God is. And we begin in the Old Testament because God's glory starts from the very first book of the Bible. But here we stop and we take a look at a passage that is meaningful, that shows us a high point in the revelation of who God is in the Old Testament. And we see that in his interaction with Moses. And as he interacts with Moses, we begin to see here God's character in his glory. And so we'll be in Exodus 33, as Pastor read. Exodus 33, starting in verse 12. And the main point of this passage, if we can, if we can summarize it, is this. Is that God invites us to trust his glorious character and who he is in our weakness. God's glory in his character, in who he is as a person, assures us that the mission he entrusts to us will be accomplished. Because it's who God is, and not who we are, that matters. And our text is occurring in the aftermath of, of Israel's idolatry with the golden calf. In chapter 32, we see Moses is up on the mountain of God receiving the law of God. He's been up there for 40 days, communing with God directly, face to face. And as he comes down, he recognizes that there is commotion in the camp. And he comes down and he discovers that Israel has rebelled against God. And leaving God, they have made a God in their own image. And they worship this golden calf as, as utter rebellion against the God who had just months earlier led them out of Egypt and had delivered them. And yet, only 40 days of silence leaves this people wondering, where's our God? Where's Moses? And they turn, and they become distracted with the idols that they've created with their own hands. And so Moses comes down, and he smashes the law of God that was given to him as a symbol of the breaking of the covenant. God cannot handle idolatry. God does not desire that. God is a jealous God and wants his people to love him. And so Israel in the state that they're in, experiences judgment and discipline, sickness, death comes upon them. But Moses steps in between Israel and God, and he mediates between them. 
And he petitions God, would you preserve your people? Would you go forward with us? Would you be with us as we continue to enter into the promised land, which you faithfully promised? And so Moses, in our passage, we get a glimpse into his conversation with God. And we see him petitioning God to preserve his people and to be with them. Moses is fearful. Moses is wondering, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to lead this people into the land, God, if you've abandoned us, if you've left us? And so he comes and he asks God to be with them. And so there's three petitions that Moses makes in this text. And we see three promises of God that answer each request of Moses, showing that our God will not abandon us, but he will be with us as we go out to accomplish what he's given us to do as a church. And so we see these three reasons that God gives us that he's worthy of our trust. And this first one is this, that we can trust God because he strengthens us with his gracious presence. Look here in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let, yet let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. You see, Moses begins by coming to God, and talking to him, and having a discussion with him, and asking him, Would you show me your way? Moses recognizes God's command here. He says, see, you say to me, God, that is, bring up this people. Earlier in the chapter, in in verse 1 of chapter 33, we see that he is instructed to depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. But we see that God will not go with them. As we read on in that section, God says, I will send an angel before you, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send someone to mediate for you, but I'm not going with you, lest I consume the people for their sin. But Moses steps in and says, God, how am I going to do this? You've told me to bring up this people, but you've not told me how I'm going to do that. He's politely saying to God, I can't do this without you, God. How could you expect me to lead this people up and into the promised land if you're not going to be with me? If you're not going to be with us as a people? I need you, God. But he points out to God at the end of verse 12, and he says, Yet you, God, have said, I know you, that is Moses, by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. You see, Moses steps back, and he knows his relationship with God. And he goes to God, and he says, God, I know you know me. You've come to me, and you've chosen me to lead this people. You've shown me great grace. You've revealed who you are to me, and you call me. To do what you ask me to do. So God, I know you know me and I know you've shown grace to me. So if that's true, and in verse 13 we see his prayer request. Show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. See, Moses' request is that he would know God more. God, I need to know that you will be for us. I need to know that you'll be with us. I need to know that you'll be here for me. I know you, God, 
I want to know you more. Because the answer to our fears and the answers to our hesitancies and the insecurities of our life is not found in being more confident in understanding this life, but is found in knowing the God who created this life. As we know who God is, we're able to confidently step out and obey who God is. We can only obey God because we know God. And God equips us with everything we need in his person to be able to confidently step forward and obey him. Moses gives one more request here at the end of verse 13. And he says this, And consider that this nation is your people. And in that statement is a whole host of promises that Moses is recalling. He's remembering how he's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would make a great nation and that he would give them a land and that blessing would come through them to all the nations. And he says, God, remember, you came and you chose this people. Remember that this is your people. Don't forget them. And so he makes these two requests to God. And in verse 14, we see the simple response of God's promise. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. In just one sentence, God responds to Moses' passionate plea, and he says, I'll be with you. And I will bring you into the land so that you might have rest. God answers and says, I will go with you. His gracious presence comes with Moses and strengthens him for his leadership. And we know that the presence of someone makes a difference in our life. And you know, you can think of back when you were a kid, when I was a kid even, which wasn't too too long ago, in the basement, the basement was dark. The basement was a scary place in the dark. And going down there by yourself to get what mom asked you to get from the basement was a scary task. And you go down those creaky steps and you step on the cold, damp basement concrete floor and there's a chill that goes up your spine because you know there's something watching you. And that weird pipe that rattles too, like that just gets you and you're like, ooh, something's down here. It's scary. But yet, how different is it when you grab your sibling and you drag them with you? And suddenly you have all the confidence in the world to be able to address whatever fears may be down there. The presence of someone makes a difference in our life. And with God, his presence with us as the conqueror of all things, the one who's defeated death itself, ensures us that we will be victorious. God is with us. And we even get to know his presence in a way that Moses didn't even know as New Testament believers. We have the privilege of God's spirit dwelling in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We know that God is with us, in us. And he dwells among us as a church. And as we come together, all of us bearing the spirit of God in our hearts together, show the presence of God among us. As we have the word of God in our midst, As we fill ourselves with that word and we come together as a church, we have the privilege of God's word and his spirit in our hearts bringing Christ himself to us, through us. We know God's presence even through his spirit who dwells in his church. And we have every confidence that God is for us because of that. We have every confidence that God will be with us because God has not merely given us a task to do. And let us go on our own. 
God has not only given us a mission, he's also given us the power and the enablement to do what he calls us to do. And so we must allow God's spirit to work in our hearts and we must allow the word of God to dwell among us so that we would have the strength through his presence to obey him. And throughout the Bible, we see a reference to to God never leaving or forsaking us. And that repeats itself through the Old Testament in people like Joshua. And it even continues even through the kings. But we see that even come to us in the church. In the Great Commission and what God gives us as our instruction, Jesus gives us the promise that he will never leave or forsake us. And we have the confidence that we can go make disciples because Jesus is with us. Because God won't abandon us. Because he's here among us. And we have every confidence that God is behind our back as we step out in faith, knowing that he wants us to do this. And he'll be with us. And so God strengthens us with this gracious presence. And as we see a vision of who he is in his glory, it moves us to go proclaim his gospel and to make disciples of the nation. But Moses makes another request here. And in this request, we see another reason to trust God. And we can trust him because he assures us with his faithful promise of who he is and what he will do. Look at verse 15 here. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so Moses intercedes for Israel a second time. And this time he picks up on what God has said and he says, Okay, God, I I believe you. But if you're not going to go with us, don't even let us go. You see, Moses' heart would rather stay in the desert and have the presence of God than to leave and go to the promised land and not have God with him. As a man of God, he knows the presence of God is what is most important. And he says, God, don't, don't let us go. Don't let us leave this place if you're not going to be with us. And in verse 16, he gives the reason for that. How then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight? Moses recognizes that God's presence shows his grace. God dwells among those that he chooses to. We don't give God anything. God has no obligation to come dwell among us. God has nothing that is forcing him to come be with us. It is a mere gracious act of God to reveal who he is and to be with us. But but Moses recognizes if we're out there and we're just going out on our own, we're just like any other nation. God, you're not going to be with us. We're just like the Amorites. We're just like the Amalekites. We're We're not your chosen people. Your presence is what makes the difference. And so he petitions God, don't let us go if you're really not going to go with us. And and God responds to Moses. And he says, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. We suddenly hear an echo of what Moses has just said back in verse 12 and 13. God, if you really know me, if you've really shown me grace, then listen to me. And then 
God echoes that back and says, I have known you and do know you, and I have shown you grace. He recognizes that, and he says, I'm going to do what you ask. See, God again affirms to Moses what he already told him earlier, and this shows God's faithfulness. I will do this. What I have promised, I will fulfill. And how encouraging that is to us. You see, we struggle to trust those in our life who are not faithful. Those who do not follow through with what they say they'll do makes that person difficult to trust. We know that in a relationship, it's hard to give ourselves over to someone if we don't think they're going to follow through with it. We see that in the workplace. We see that in our personal lives. And so we would understand the hesitancy that Moses could have if God isn't faithful. But God, in his graciousness towards us, not only tells us he'll do something, but he affirms it again and again because he knows we're fickle. He knows we struggle to trust him. And so he often repeats what he has already promised to remind us that he will follow through. God is worthy to be trusted, and he has promised here, doubly promised to Moses, I will be with you. I will go with you. And what a privilege that was for Moses, and what an encouragement that would have been to his heart to know, okay, God will be with me. God's coming. We can go forward, and we're going to get this done. And for us, too, we can trust that same God. We sang, Almighty, unchangeable God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This God doesn't change. The very faithful God who led Israel up and out of the wilderness is the same God who is the head of the church and up and leads us into his mission for us so that we might accomplish it for his glory and for our good. And so because he's faithful, we must hold fast to his faithful word. What he has said here, he is trustworthy. What he has said is true. God can't lie. And so we must hold fast to this word. And we must make this the center of who we are as a church. And keep this word as the very foundation of everything we do. Because what God has said, he will accomplish no matter what happens. No matter what may fall. God is faithful, and we can trust him. Even this pattern of Moses interceding for Israel reminds us of a greater reality that Christ intercedes for us. Moses, as the head of the Old Covenant, interceded between God and Israel. He was the mediator between those two people. But as we come to the New Testament, we even see a greater individual, one who intercedes for us between God and man, God and his church. And we see Christ, in whom we've seen the fullness of God, who has dwelt with God, who is God himself, who has shown us grace upon grace, more than Moses ever received. And in Jesus Christ, we see him petitioning for us, Standing before the throne of God, day after day after day, interceding for you and for me, saying, I have taken his sins upon me. He is clear. That person is righteous, though they've sinned. Jesus intercedes for us in a way that Moses never could, because Christ is God himself. 
And in him we have seen the glory of God. And what a privilege and confidence that gives us as a church to step up and go, though we may fail at times, though sin still is within us because of the flesh, it will not hinder us. Because God is victorious over sin. And he has proven that to us. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, our mediator, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And God is faithful. And if God has given us his son, what else could he give to prove his faithfulness to us? He gave himself. And we can trust that he will be faithful because of that. The last request that Moses makes shows us not only that God is gracious and faithful, but also that he's compassionate. And we trust God because he demonstrates to us his compassionate goodness towards us. And in the high point of this passage in verse 18, we suddenly see all of this come to a culmination. In the last two requests, Moses has been interceding for the people of Israel. But as we get to verse 18, he makes a very personal request. And he looks to God and he simply says this, Please show me your glory. Moses at this point in time, is a man who's seen God's glory more than anyone else has ever seen. And it all began at the burning bush when he was looking for a lost sheep. And God came to him in a burning bush in that fire, revealing himself and said, this is holy ground. And Moses trembled at that sight, fearful of the glory of God. Moses saw God's glory lead Israel up and out of Egypt. He saw the fire that protected them from the Egyptians. He saw the cloud that descended and led them through the wilderness. He saw God come and descend upon Mount Sinai with the thunderings and the lightning and the fire. And people couldn't even come near to the mountain because they were fearful. And Moses, having known God now, and having tasted the divine glory of who God is, has found that he has an insatiable thirst for more of God. He has to know God more. Because if he knows God more, he will be able to do what God asks him to do. You see, once we've tasted God, we cannot stop. We must want more of God. Because when we know who God is, we can't help but drink in of more of his glory. And we can't help but spill over with how glorious he is. And we just continue to sing praises and honor to him. So he asks, please show me your glory. Because this would give him assurance that what God had asked him to do, he would be successful in. And now look how God does most of the talking here after this. In the previous section, Moses elaborated on his request and shared lots of information. But here he shares one simple request and God quickly answers that. And in the rest of our passage, we see God's response to him. In verse 19, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Notice that God responds to Moses' request by saying he'll show him his goodness. Moses asked for God's glory, and God gave him his goodness. That shows us God's glory is not shown in power and in wonderful displays of might, 
but it's seen in his kindness towards us. God's glory is seen in his grace towards humanity. And the goodness of God would pass by Moses, demonstrating his glory. And, and, and God here qualifies that. Lest Moses gets presumptuous with his request, God tells him, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, Moses, I'm doing this not because you asked, but because I want to. I want to show you my glory. Because I'm that great, I can reveal who I am to you. And I can show you who I am. But I'm doing it because that's what I want to do. Because I am the sovereign and good God who can do whatever he pleases. But I will show you grace, Moses. I will demonstrate that to you. And in verse 21, we see the Lord says and gives him a provision. If Moses was to behold this goodness of God, God's goodness is so much that it would kill Moses to even look at it directly. And so he, God provides for him by providing a way for him to see God without being destroyed, without being annihilated by the greatness of God's grace. And so God instructs him, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you over here and you're going to stand over here and I'm going to hide you in the rock as I pass by so that you won't be obliterated by how great and grand I am. This faithful and gracious provision shows Moses God's glory. The small glimpse that Moses sees has a life-changing effect on him. You see, God says here that I will proclaim my name to you. In chapter 34, verse 6, we see this actually happen. We see this promise come to fruition. In verse 6, we see a description of this God as he passes by Moses. Just imagine with me if you're standing there and you hear this voice cry out, and that says, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. When God said he would show him his goodness, this is what God showed him. And we see in that description of God, a God who is gracious, but also a God who is just. And both of those things held in perfect tension. God being gracious. God being just. The amazing, wonderful, beautiful God that we have has shown us grace and justice. And we ourselves know that today in a way that we might not even be able to understand. That in a way that Moses couldn't even understand. Moses saw God's glory, but he saw a glimpse of it. In John, we read that the fullness of God was seen in Jesus Christ. And he says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the only God, full of grace and truth. This Christ has shown us grace. And he's shown us justice. Christ is the just one. And the justifier of those who believe in him. In Christ, we've seen God's grace in providing sacrifice, but in Christ, at the same time, we've seen his justice 
and forgiving us of sins and holding his, our guilt against our Savior. We have seen God work greatly in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know the glory of God. And so no longer do we need to say, God, show me your glory. We need, and we go to God and we say, help me understand your glory because this book testifies to Jesus Christ, the one who has come and all that is written in here points to Jesus. And everything that the apostles and the prophets have written in the New Testament testifies to witnesses who have seen the glory of our risen Lord. And so we come to scripture and we say we have seen the glory of God. And we ask God, help us know that glory more. Missouri is known as the show me state. You may have heard that phrase before. It's not their official slogan. And no one actually quite knows where it came from. But the origin of the saying is unknown, but it it really refers to the need that I need to be convinced. You got to show me. Not just tell me that you're going to do something. Show me you're going to do it. What a gracious God we have that doesn't merely just say, I'm going to do that. But he also demonstrates, I will do that. And he's shown us in Jesus that he really does love us and he's really for us. And he will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish because he is God and he is faithful. And so he's demonstrated to us his love for us. And I think in response to glory like this, I would be amiss to say, if you've not come to know this God, And if this glorious God is not one of grace, but he's one of fear and trembling, and one before whom fear comes, then I would invite you to turn to Christ, where his glory and his grace is seen beyond measure, where our sins have been placed upon the Son of God who's died and has risen for us. And I would invite you to trust him, place your faith in him, because he is the one who is worth living for, and he is the one whose glory we've seen. And if you are searching, if you're looking for something to satisfy you, you will keep looking until you have come to God who can satisfy the parched and thirsty souls of our hearts. But then as a church, I invite us, we must look to Christ. We must see the fullness of God's glory and look to his goodness. If he is the one in whom we are to preach and to teach, if he is the one of whom we're supposed to make disciples for, And we must know him and we must know this glory so that we can be strengthened and motivated as a church to go forth and proclaim his gospel. Because at the end of time, the only enduring motivation that will ever last into eternity is God's glory. Because we get a vision of that in Revelation where all the people of God are gathered before the throne. And what are they doing? Glorifying God. And if that's going to be our destiny, we better get busy about doing that now. Because we're going to do it forever, so we better love it now because we're going to love it later. So we need to remember, the only enduring motivation is the praise of God's glorious grace in Jesus Christ. So as a church, let us remember that God is gracious. He's faithful, and he's compassionate, and he assures us that the disciples we will make, and he assures us that our mission will be complete. What a wonder that God uses former idolaters and uses them to further his work. And so let's do that together as a church. Father, thank you for this reminder in your word. God, like Moses, 
We want to see your glory, and you've shown it to us in Jesus. So continue to open our eyes by your Spirit so that we might behold wondrous things and make Christ exalted among us. God, we love you, but thank you, thank you for loving us first. In your name we pray. Amen.